All right, today we talk with Roger. Let's get a little bit of a breakdown on what he does, and then we'll jump into the full conversation. I'm Roger Spurts. I'm a kind of a reformed banker who saw the light, and um, I'm currently focusing on things which I think are, are meaningful, and in particular, how quickly the world is changing and what we need to do about it. So if you don't know what we're doing here at Are You a Robot? This is a series that aims to tackle some of the greatest questions around AI ethics and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is we're gathering some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk to me and hash out some of these greater discussions and figure out if there's any best practices that we can take away from these people that are just day in, day out, thinking about these big problems. So I will mention that the conversation doesn't stop here. If you like any of the words that we are about to say in the next hour and some change, please jump into our Slack community. There's incredible minds in there that are very generous with their time and their intelligence who are just being amazing citizens. And it's a great place for you to introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on, and get involved in these conversations. The last thing that I will mention is we have an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade are the reason behind the amazing guests that we have on. And if it wasn't for them, none of this would be possible. So they're doing some pretty innovative stuff around figuring out the companies. AI governance policies. So it's a place that you can go to fit, to see what kind of companies stack up against an, other companies. This is a place where you can check out Twitter versus TikTok or Toyota versus Tesla. And you can see how their AI governance policies shape up against one another. If you'd like to learn more about Ethics Grade, I implore you, go check out the link below. And now, without further ado, well, actually, no, wait, I have one last thing to say. Please, if you are listening to this and you find any value in it, give us a like so that more people can see it. And if you are listening in podcast land, you know what would be incredible is if you can leave us a comment or a review because I'm going to start reading some of the reviews and giving the listeners some shout outs. I think that would be really cool to do. And it doesn't matter if the review is negative or positive. I am transparent about what's going on here. Leave us a review or leave us a comment on YouTube and uh, we'll start giving you all shout outs in the next episodes. So now let's talk with Roger about all of this craziness that he gets into. And you may see that there was a little bit of a detour when we started talking about Zen, Buddhism, and how exactly that plays a part in AI ethics. But really when he talks about disruption, and he makes the correlation with Zen Buddhism. I think it's fascinating and I have never heard it put before, but it is so true that we need to have this level-headedness and we need to know that change is inevitable. And we're the ones who are painting the picture of if the change is good or if the change is bad. Let's just embrace disruption and make it happen. So let's talk with Roger. I had a wonderful time interviewing him. And 
I would love for you to give me feedback on it. There we go. Are you a robot? Roger, it is an honor to have you on here. Uh, the more I read about you, the more intrigued I get. You are doing a plethora of things right now with your life. And as you mentioned before, you were a banker that saw the light. <laughs> and I like the way you put that. I mean, you were dealing with a lot of IPOs. You were dealing with a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And that led you to where you are now. Can you give us a bit of an idea of what exactly do you do now? Yeah. So formerly, I'm a, I'm a professionally trained and I professionalized foresight and futures. So <clears throat> I spent time trying to think deeper, broader, wider, uh, longer time horizons around possible futures. And in particular, the area that interests me is a uh, nonlinear transformational change. So AKA disruption, for want of a better word, mm. and how on one hand, you prepare for that. And on the other hand, you have agency to, to drive your own futures. Hmm. So this non-linear, non-predictable world, as we so clearly experienced while trying to set up this podcast, uh, <laughs> can you break that down a little bit for us? Like disruption, what does that mean in your eyes and how have you been seeing it play out? Yeah, so disruption fundamentally for me is pretty simple. It's it's a break or it's an interruption um, in what was formerly no, normalcy. So it's a significant change, transformation, whether it's for people, for agents, for companies of all shapes and sizes. And because of, of that change, you need to redesign your behavior to adjust to what might be a different normal. So it's a radical change. It's... Um, it's only a radical change because of the flawed assumption that the world believes that uh, things are linear, stable, and predictable. Um, but actually, for me, it's it's not necessarily good or bad. The impact depends on the on the perspective. If you take uh, if you take J Japanese culture, for instance, they believe in the you know kintsugi is uh, things that are broken apart that contain the promise and possibility. You can reconnect them with a with a thread of gold to make something even more beautiful. If you take the concept of uh, in Japan, mujo, which is basically everything is uh, is impermanence, it's transience, it's mutability, it's constant change. But you live your life, you're fulfilling nonetheless. It's just that it's uh, something that isn't necessarily predictable. So the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And you are the one who gets to decide how you interpret things. Uh, I want to dig into a bit of this Zen philosophy that I know you are a proponent for and you have a, a whole section of your life dedicated to towards education also. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it comes up in that. But before we jump into that, I have been thinking about this idea of the nonlinear that you speak of and the disruption and how, again, going back to the education, you're trying to educate for that, for the, the idea there that up until now, what we have been educating for has worked in a way, and now all of a sudden it's not working, uh, I think is, is how I see it. And this question, I think, is a bit abstract, so forgive me if I can't put it into words perfectly, but it's 
like, okay, we're living now and we always have been living in this non-linear, non-predictive world. But it's not until fairly recently that we've realized that the way that we're going about educating for it is not working. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on that. Like, is it tech that made us realize this is just our, all of our assumptions were not correct? So I think the, the assumptions have never necessarily been correct, but uh, the difference was, I guess, how much of the time one could get away with flawed assumptions mm. and what was the impact of the flawed assumptions. And so I think the big distinction over the past few years and, uh, you know, Stephen Hawkins himself uh, qualified the 21st century as a century of complexity. I think the big distinction is really the, the distinction between what is complicated versus what is complex. Mm. If you're in a complicated environment, cause and effect is uh, more clear cut. You have right answers. There's a range of possible answers. You can rely on experts. And so, it's the world we know, you know, why planes fly, how to, you know, if you find oil, how to drill it. It's, it's things are more disconnected. You can isolate them, you can understand them, you can under appreciate the causality, etc. Now, in a complex world, none of that is necessarily correct. In a complex world, cause and effect is multidimensional. So you can potentially only understand the effects of something ex post, not necessarily ex ante. There are unknown unknowns, and so there's not necessarily a, right, a range of right answers or, rain, or right answer itself. The whole is greater or at least different from the sum of the parts. And in particular, in complex systems, the impact can have a disproportionate effect as they are nonlinear. So that's where you start getting... Um, the, the educational system or the way people are cabled or the assumptions companies or organizations or countries make because you suddenly don't have the same cause and effect. You don't necessarily have a range of right answers. And the, the impacts of things which are all interrelated in ways which is like, you know, the iceberg, basically. You only see the tip and everything is kind of feeds on itself. You can have a disproportionate impact to things that are being done or, or the inputs are basically providing a disproportionate effect in terms of the, the consequences of the outputs. And so when you put all that together, some of it is technology, some of it is, um, you know, multiplicity, you know, the speed of, of velocity of, of change, of information. There are a large number of factors we can, we can dig into. But fundamentally, that distinction between complicated and complex, it means that what you assume is no longer valid. So in a world where you provide advice because there are ways of doing things and there's, you can rely on experts, we actually call this a world, instead of calling it a world of where you can have advice or, or even you know, the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and um, ambiguous, we call it unvice because it's a world which is, you can't give advice. You need to sort of think on your feet and, and emerge as to what the right answer is or what you think is the right emergence at that particular point in time. So advice for us, it's, it's unknown. You've got to have humility about your knowledge. The relationships between things, cause and effect, and unintended consequences and the next order impacts are more liminal. It's not kind of clearly demarcated. So it's, it's uh, unknown. Mm -hmm. 
it's volatile. Again, it's it's not necessarily positive or negative. Um, you can do well from volatility. Chemistry relies on volatility, but basically things change quickly. So it's not a positive or negative, but but it's a it's a you know it's a fact. There's volatility, so things can change quickly. Things are intersecting, so they've always been intersecting. I mean, Leonardo, I think, mentioned you know learn what you see, realize that everything connects to everything else. So, but what's happening now is that. It's not just that things intersect and that the magic or or the impacts are determined by those connections or intersections. It's really that there are no boundaries. In other words, you don't have different sectors or different industries or different skills. Mm-hmm. Everything is is feeding on itself and create new combinations, whether it's between technology or biology or what have you. So everything is intersecting. So that's the the eye of you know unvice complex. We talked about. And the last thing for our acronym advice is exponential. And exponential, yes, I do think there's an element whereby the speed, velocity, and, and shape of change is, is increasingly um, exponential. And the greatest paradox with change is that change is actually slow, but inflection points can cascade quickly. So what happens is that you can miss these changes and the inflection points. And precisely because exponential is a treacherous concept and we have a cognitive bias towards a linear mindset and we have difficulty processing exponential but it's basically you can might you might have you know explosive growth at the beginning which are barely perceptible and only become you know visible towards the end now of course when i talk about exponential everybody's like yeah of course i learned that school i know what it is i visualize the graph it's so basic the truth is that is the main reason why um, a lot of the flaws happen because people don't anticipate correctly. Um, it's actually a positive thing because you can use exponential to your benefit as well. You can reach you know billions of people promptly. But basically, it's it's connected to Amara's law, which is you know you overestimate the impact of a technology in the short term, but underestimate it in the long term. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of uh, of these kind of features to change is where basically to your initial question, for me, it comes down to an impact on education because that world is not necessarily the same world as when the pace of change is slower or you can pick up inflection points or there's less happening. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it brings to mind the, uh, what is it? The saying that the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Exactly. It's totally that where you don't see it and you think everything is going normal and then one day something small or relatively what we in the bigger picture small, all of a sudden it's that inflection point that you speak of. So that is a fascinating one to ponder. And I want to dig in a little bit more to the institute that you're a chairman of. Uh, and it's called the Disruptive Future Institute, which I think is a fascinating name also, because again, it seems like there's this theme that you are a large proponent of, which is let's let's not fear the change. Let's not fear the disruption. Let's open or let's welcome it with open arms. And so when I saw that you are teaching philosophy and Zen Buddhism through this institute, it made total sense in my mind. 
anyone who is familiar with any of these Zen stories where I, I know one, there's so many, but one that comes to mind instantly is the, the farmer or the Zen, the Zen monk whose neighbor says that he is uh, the father of the daughter's <laughs> Um, the daughter, so a Zen monk and a daughter or his neighbor, just his neighbor's daughter just had a, uh, a daughter or a baby. And mm -hmm. the daughter says, Hey, the father, she was too ashamed to say who the father really was. So she said it was the Zen monk from across the street. And so the parents outraged, they went and they brought the baby to the Zen monk and said, you need to raise this child. It's your child. How dare you sleep with my daughter, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And the Zen monk took it in stride. Right. And I, I can't remember what the exact words were. Uh, it's been a while since I've heard the story, but it was like, is that so? Or something like that. And then Later on, the daughter is filled with guilt and she actually comes out and says who's the real father, but this is years later and the Zen monk had been raising this child as if it were his own, right? And then the parents come across the street and they say, oh, how dare we treat you like that? I can't believe we gave you this, this baby and you've been raising it. And so they take it back. And the Zen monk, again, it's like that, that flat panel of like, is that so? Okay, like just take it in stride. And so this is a long-winded way of saying or trying to dig into your philosophy on this and just taking things in stride. And so I'd love to hear you comment a bit more about why that is so important. Yeah. So this, it's a great story. I didn't actually know that, that version of it, but it's, uh, the concepts are great. And, uh, so there are a number of things I, you know, on a professional level, I have two hats. I spend time on boards and with corporates and I, you know, as a foresight practitioner and, and that, but I, the institute side and the education side and the, the philosophy, and it's not just philosophy, but it's, it's I think, an important uh, component to it, mm. is really just thinking about the, you know, six, seven billion people in the world for whom, e even before the pandemic, I think the pandemic accelerated things, but the fundamentals are that I personally believe things will change very rapidly for most pretty much everyone anywhere in the world, whether it's individuals, companies, that. And I think there's a lot of, you know, market for people training to, to become all kinds of things and looking at corporates and innovation and all these things. And there's, there's loads of great stuff for that. But I just feel that on the individual side, a lot is focused on specific skills, which is great, you know, coding or, or what have you. But I just found that the concept of disruption, whatever age you are, wherever you are in the world, is actually one you got to get used to. And I personally don't think it's a negative, and I'll tell you why in a minute, and I'll link to, to your question around the philosophy. But the main thing is that it's, it's there anyway. So you have different ways of approaching it. But I think the first one is to start to understand it, its features. And that's the first level of the education, I guess, and the philosophy is, is to understand it. And my view, and that's where philosophy comes in, is that there's very good reasons why not only should you try and understand it and accept it, but you should actually be grateful that it's there. Because at its most fundamental level, and I'll dig into this, 
It's precisely because the world isn't predictable, stable, and linear that you're able to do things that might seem impossible, that you're able to do new things, that they are things that um, you're not just pigeonholed because you've done A or B, that the rest of your life will be determined from that. And there are a lot of great movies and, and books on that. And I, one of which I love is a, is a French movie called um, Smoking No Smoking by Anna René with one scene where, you know, the girl goes to smoke a cigarette at the back of the garden and she doesn't hear the doorbell and then there's an entire movie based on the fact that she doesn't hear the doorbell and then the other movie she does hear the doorbell and, and everything happens but that mm. that concept is simply contingency and um we talked about zen buddhism which is which is very very important philosophy it's also you know existential philosophy if you think about the likes of a uh, heidegger or kierkegaard or sartre the fundamental thing is the role of choice right and um if you take Sartre in uh, existentialism as a humanism, he sort of says man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world and defines himself afterwards. And that's the real crux. You define yourself. You have the agency to build a future. And it's precisely because of the uncertainty of the open future that is not a deterministic model. And so for me, you're not certain what will happen or not. There is contingency. And all possibilities and eventualities can happen. And these outcomes are impossible to predict. But what contingency and agency does allow is for chance and serendipity. And as individuals, if you exist as free agents, you can determine one's own developments through your choices and actions, as opposed to everything being certain, predetermined, mm -hmm. deterministic or reductionist. In a way, that uncertainty enables chance and choice to empower different outcomes. And so for me, you know, standing on the so on the shoulders of the Kierkegaards or the Heideggers, when Jean-Paul Sartre so powerfully says that the condition of being human is existence precedes the essence, by that what he means is that our agency emerges through choice. We must keep on choosing. Mm -hmm. And so while existence is indeterminate and therefore it's unknowable, we're defining our essence as it emerges. And in doing so, we're moving in different directions and those are defining us. And so our, part of our work is not the only thing. We look at technologies, we look at specifics, we look at some of the wonderful thinking of complexity and systems thinking and uh, futures and foresight and many other disciplines. But one of the things that's important if you therefore think about disruption is that it encourages diverse, innovative perspectives. It encourages curiosity and experimentation and criticality, right? Yeah. So it means because of these experiences, you obtain kind of a heuristic investigation instead of a kind of predetermined or techno-scientific, you know, modelized version of the world. And that investigation allows you to guide your choices, basically. And so for us, we see disruption as an existential invitation to encourage and enable learning through experimental thinking, exploratory thinking, and emergent adaptive behavior. And for me, that really just draws on freedom and agency. And so we don't do that to exclude the importance of specific models and mindset and frameworks and, and using very good tools to understand what complexity is and systems thinking and, and all of that. But we do acknowledge this role we have um, in terms of choice and agency. And also 
the time where the world is at, where you kind of need a rebirth. You need sometimes chaotic times as a catalyst to drive radical transformation. And so if you think of Schumpeter's creative disruption, you know, he puts a premium on countries that actually invest in innovation and constant reinvention, even though that process of kind of industrial mutation continuously revolutionizes economic structure, constantly destroying the old ones and incessantly creating the new ones. And so that is really where you go full circle with the philosophy and to, to you, the starting point in Zen Buddhism, you know, if you think about the concept of Shoshin, it's never forget the beginner's mind, right? It's you always sort of have things with a fresh view. And that's what a lot of, you know, whether it's Amazon's or Jeff Bezos or many innovative companies, the hard thing is to unsee what you know, to unlearn and relearn what you're learning, right? And so when you have master, for instance, Suzuki Roshi, who says, you know, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. Yeah. That's really where it comes full circle. And if the world wasn't disruptive, quote unquote, and it's a terrible bullshit bingo term, but let's you know use that for want of a better one. If it was predictable and certain and there wasn't uncertainty, you wouldn't be able to have this beginner's mind. You wouldn't be able to have choices. You wouldn't be able to have surprises. You wouldn't be able to invent anything new, et cetera. And so in a way, the world kind of suppressed this perception of disruption by relying on flawed assumptions on stability and predictability. The consequences for much of the past few decades have been more limited or ad hoc to a specific crisis like the financial crisis. The problem is that with the multiplicity and the velocity of some of these elements intersecting, you can't dissect them or isolate them anymore. And because it's nonlinear, there's the disproportionate impact. And you're seeing it with climate, we'll see it with AI, you'll see it with many things. But they're not all negative because for the reasons we discussed. So I like that last point, the inability to be able to single out one thing and say that it is it is this because there are so many factors that are involved in it that and so many x factors and so much that is intertwined we can no longer just say it's because of this the the reason is x or y and the other uh, the other thing i wanted to mention was along the lines of this beginner's mind, which is such a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that it has become very popular these days. You see it being thrown around, but in different terms. I, uh, I would feel like the idea of first principles, which Elon Musk has made so famous, right? That's the same thing. Being able to see the first principles, being able to see with beginner's mind, and like, as you said, there's so many possibilities in the beginner's mind, but in the expert's mind that's been pigeonholed into something, exactly. they only see one or two because that's how they know. That's where it yep. goes. And the, the main question that I come up with after hearing this is, and especially everything that you've been saying, where does the idea of history repeats itself and being able to gain knowledge from the past fit into all of this? So that's a fantastic question. And um, so there are a few things. I think, first of all, 
history is extraordinarily important, even with the night to the future. So, and, you know, I won't try and kind of um, quantify things, but I, I think it might have been the Institute for the Future or um, one of the founders, maybe um, Amara, but who sort of considers you should look, you know, if you're thinking about looking at the next X years, you should look at the history twice as much. Mm. Um, so if you're thinking about the next 40 years, you should think about the past 80 years. But but actually, of course, you should look at long, long periods. But history is very important probably for, you know, if you think about the constitution of change and the future, and I think it was maybe, um, you know, very well-respected and one of the brightest futurists, um, Jim Data, who, and this will not be his exact term, so, you know, the audience will have to forgive me, but who kind of, I think, um, considers that the future has three constituents, right? One is things that have um, existed and that will continue to exist and that, you know, are quote-unquote constant. And there's a second piece, which is things that have existed that may no longer exist for a given period in the future, but may reappear. So we could consider those to be cycles. They're not always there, but they kind of might come back or go. It's like bell bottoms. Exactly. So there could be elements of, of cycles. Um, but the third piece is, is what we discussed earlier with the lack of predictability and, um, and uh, ex, you know, the, the fact that the world is not linear and, and predictable, which is the future is open. So there are things that have never existed, but will exist in the future. And that's why disruption, quote unquote, and uncertainty and, and unpredictability is actually a good thing because it allows that third piece, which is the open future. So if you think about that, that's where history is very important because unless you understand the constituents of change and history, it will be harder as you sort of, go to explore the future and to think about change and transformational change and inflection points, it will be harder to have a perspective of that if you don't have a sense of, of the past, of elements that may repeat themselves in a quote-unquote cyclical way, and they may kind of appear different times in different ways. And they're also elements which are probably quite constant. And so... So those are one of the reasons why, you know, the history is phenomenally important to to thinking about the future. Mm. Yeah. So we can't stop reading books just yet. <laughs> uh, it's probably the most important thing you can do. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Much more important than listening to the podcast. So get out there, everyone, and <laughs> read a book. Now, or listen to it. Yeah, or listen to them. Exactly. That's one of my favorite ways of digesting them these days. Uh, let's dive into the idea that you presented about how difficult it is for us humans to make decisions. And I wanted to talk a bit about the information age that we live in, the misinformation age that we live in, and, and things that have happened because of that. And so do you see... These two, I mean, in the interconnectedness of everything, how do you see these two things being connected? The misinformation, information age, and our difficulties of, of making decisions in such a complex system. Yeah. Listen, this is, this is really the pretty, pretty important layer. I actually rank it amongst the top. I actually rank information as one of the top drivers of disruption. 
in its own right. And, and so first, I guess some terms, right? So information is really understanding data in context, right? Understanding something. And then misinformation is, I guess, inaccurately construing or communicating information. So that's, I guess, misinformation. Where disinformation comes in is that it, that information is intentionally designed to mislead, okay? And we actually, I think, coin the term inforuption. In other words, we no longer know where we stand with any of this. Oh, wow. it's, it's like disruption, but, but for information. And, and why is that? Is because my sense is that information affects the very fabric of society. And not only will it be the primary sort of weapon used in war in the future, if it isn't already, but I wonder whether it could ultimately determine the future of humanity. And I know these are very big words and what am I to kind of opine on them, but for what it's worth, those are my views. You've invited me here, so I'm sharing them. Um, but I, I really think that society is, is only just starting to understand the broad reach of the many facets and ramifications of information. If you take, for instance, and this is just kind of to frame things, um, one of the acronyms that one looks at often with, with change or, or, you know, in foresight, which is steep, social, technological, environmental, economic, and political, take information, for instance, it hits on every single one of those, right? It's, it can be productized and exported as a political instrument, as we've seen and will continue to see. It can be disseminated by algorithms, obviously, which are engineered by some of the biggest technology companies. And that information kind of defines and then tears through the, its own creation, you know, polarized society. So it's societal, it's technological. Environment, well, you know, guess what? Unlimited information is being generated. It's growing exponentially. Needless to say how many, you know, data centers and servers are required for that um, every minute. Yeah. Economically, if you think of the you know, the perspective that every byte of data, B-Y-T-E or, or, or spelled otherwise, every byte of data produces information with perceived knowledge from which you have, you know, assumed insights, which are monetized basically almost like a crystal ball or prediction capability. And then if you look at, very interestingly, in 2017, the armed forces in the U.S. actually recognized the increasing impact of information and they added it they added information as a seventh joint function. Oh, wow. Why was that? Because they recognized that basically groups and even individuals now have access to more information than entire governments once possessed, right? And so they can see how quickly any individual organization or state can organize and act on what they learn. They can use any type of information in any form as a weapon. It can be productized, transformed, exported instantaneously at scale, often without attribution, and pretty much with few rules and at almost limited, if not no cost. So once you put all that together, for me, that kind of frames the pervasiveness and the, the reason why I think information is, is so important. And we can unpack some of those, and I'm sure we will over the next few minutes, but I'll pause for a second just to kind of, you know, let you react or what have you. Yeah. There are so many different pieces to that. And the idea that information goes and it's it's goes across each of these verticals and plays a major part in it is huge, right? I mean, it's for me to think about like the 
information and how that stands with disruption, again, the false information, the information that we have in the, uh, like you're saying, where do you see these, these two coexisting? How is it that the information that we have at our fingertips, and like you said, we can have uh, more information than a government could have had years ago, is letting us be more in this, uh, this level state of mind as disruption or welcoming disruption as it comes, if that makes sense. Yeah, so for, so here on the information front, I'm a little bit more um, concerned and negative. In other words, while the fundamentals of change and the fact that the world isn't predictable and the fact that you know we need to be tuned into the choices we have and contingency, I think those are features which with the right mindset and with the right kind of guidance and the right thinking, there's a lot of positive things which come from, from all of that, as we've discussed. Information, I'm more concerned, to be honest. I'm more concerned because I'm not seeing it as, as the wonders of the world. And I think movies like The Social Dilemma are only just touching a tip of the iceberg. I think they completely missed what's really happening here, which is the stakeholder dynamics, which is who has the most power, who has the most to gain or lose with certain outcomes, in whose interest is it to use the information the way it's being used? And that's where I don't even think the social dilemma, and not to pick on them, I mean, it's a very important um, movie and theme and, and, and education around what they're talking about. But the point is that it's so pervasive and potentially so um, impactful, not necessarily in a positive way, that one misses to our earlier point around interconnection and systems, how everything is connected. So this is where I'm going to give you a few, a few thoughts of mine. And I, you know, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm trying to be as cohesive as I can. But what we saw in 2020, for instance, in, in the Western democracies, fighting the pandemic and what was probably still is one of the biggest health crises in the past hundred years, right? And um, we saw that people still were not necessarily prepared to wear masks and not prepared to sign up to tracing programs and not prepared to do any of that, right? In the most of the Western world, Israel's probably an exception. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And you think about the Western democracies such as the US and the UK or Europe, where society is so polarized. And this is not an accident. So the governments basically are being manipulated because their populations are being completely polarized and played with. So you see it, whether it's the 16 or 20 elections in the US, but you see it in other elections in Italy and France, you see it with Brexit, you see it with, with the everything. You see it with why the US has the worst performance in terms of managing COVID. It's partly because of that manipulation and the polarization of, of society. And so it ends up that, you know, it's very difficult for government to control anything when it's um, everything is so diffused and disorganized and, and coordinated, right? And, and that's what you saw with the pandemic. And I'm not saying it's just because of information, but the fact that everybody was so polarized didn't help. Now, what, what happens behind the scenes is that in the West, of course, there's concerns around privacy and ethical concerns, which are the right 
concerns to have. And then you have some, some states like China, Russia, and Iran. Um, and, and for the anecdote, there was a nine-month investigation by the AP and the Atlantic Council's DFR lab, which found China, Russia, and Iran were drawing on one another's online disinformation. They amplified the theories and disinformation around COVID. And basically, that caused a lot of the polarization and the confusion. And they do that not just with COVID, they do that with, with a lot of other things. I think Princeton found in 2019 that Russia was responsible for 70% of all the inf international information. And so it's, it's amazing because this hits businesses. It hits Vodafone or AT&T because of the rumors on 5G. It hits biological warfare rumors on people who are prepared to vaccinate. I think in the US, you know, there's probably, I think the latest, that, for what it's worth, um, um, polls were that 27% would not be prepared to have a vaccine and 22% were not sure. So half the population, which is exactly the objective of the, the actors who are, prepared, who are doing this, is to have things polarized exactly in the middle. So you can see what's the coincidence of the US elections and of Brexit being almost 50-50 middle of the line? What's the coincidence of the latest polls of US hesitancy for vaccines being 27% no and 22% not sure, and that the total of that is 49%, which is not that far from 50-50. And so this is fantastic because it's fantastic if you're one of the actors trying to perpetrate this because at almost no entry costs, you can basically productize export or, or use domestically generated information or disinformation, propel it to whoever you want. And, you know, you have people in Russia like Vladislav Surkov, who, who deserves a special mention. I mean, he is basically one of the architects of the way information, quote unquote, is managed in Russia and how power works. And he basically is also, an, you know, the pen name for a dystopian science fiction under the pseudonym of Nathan Dubovitsky. So basically you have people who for decades have been very good at the art of disinformation, who are now leveraging on the ability and the power of the algorithms and mutually reinforcing the objectives, which are you know similar objectives for Iran, for China, for Russia, which is basically to have polarized society, to weaken democracies, to weaken the countries, not necessarily for any political direct gain, but it just gets easier to do what you want, whether you're at home in Russia or China, it's easier to sort of take over or to interfere in neighboring countries. And just in relative terms, if you take Ricardo in terms of economic relative strength of different countries, in relative terms, the weaker the US, the UK or Europe is, not only can you do kind of what you want, but in relative terms, you're doing better, right? And so by coincidence, China during the past few months is doing very well. They've done the biggest trade deal with the rest of Asia. Who is India or the neighboring countries going to turn to or how are they going to worry about doing whatever they want in Hong Kong or elsewhere while the West is on its knees? And so the real, the real concern for me, and this is, this is the case for most of the Western democracies. They're completely polarized down the middle. It's only a country like Israel, 
which is maybe an exception where they're very good at technology, they're very good at disruption, they understand the value of the databases of being able to talk, you know, anonymize research and data. They know they have themselves constant existential threats. They think like a startup. They're very disruptive. So in Israel, it's phenomenal what they've done. And it's no accident that it's the number one country in the world in terms of progress, in terms of the vaccines and that. But for the rest of the world, what happens is that you have basically a huge debate around privacy and ethics, which is great and important, but I'm not actually sure that the US or the Western world is more ethical or has better privacy than anywhere else in the world. The society is completely polarized. The Western governments are absolutely rich in terms of exceptional data, but they have absolutely no power to do anything. And so the question for me is, do you end up with the worst of both worlds, in fact, where you don't have the benefits of, of information, of cohesiveness, of leveraging on technology, on the democracies, and you actually have the worst of both worlds. And so maybe it was a little bit of a long answer, but that's that's kind of how my mind works in terms of the dangers of it. And therefore, you know, how can you kind of manage anything in any circumstances if intentionally there are outside factors that are absolutely seeking to divide 50-50 down the middle to make sure that things are magnified, amplified, and polarized. Mm -hmm. Huge point there too about it's not necessarily to make for any specific reason other than when shit is hitting the fan at home, you're not going to want to go overseas and fight a war. So you've laid out all of this for us, which to me is very logical and it makes a lot of sense. Do you have suggestions on how we can make it right or how we can move forward without the erosion of democracy? Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, the, it's, it's really tricky, but... I think like a lot of the things we've talked about, it comes back to education because ultimately the fact that maybe the current certain generations of leaders, whether they're organizations or countries or companies are kind of quote unquote useless. And, you know, just for some of the reasons we've talked about in terms of the wrong assumptions of the state of the world, in terms of predictability and that, mm. and are not and have not anticipated a certain amount of things. Um, the more you tuned in to understanding some of the things we've talked about, the less likely you are to fall in the trap. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of that comes from education. And ultimately, at its most fundamental level, the elements around you know accuracy and fact check, et cetera. But more generally, it's really the mindset of understanding um, how things are interconnected and systems and how, who, in whose interest is it for these things to happen. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, this is a tricky area because what I'm not suggesting is that one should point the finger toward any particular um, state or organization or country as being the culprit for all of that. Some of it is self-generated and self-made. This is just kind of an amplification of it and an example to, because on the point of information, I think it would be remiss not to kind of interject around certain roles of certain countries. But I think ultimately none of it matters in terms of the nature of, of 
the who or the why, and there's no need for post-mortem because the fundamentals of being able to um, do that can be done by anywhere, you know, 16-year-old kid anywhere in the world with $3 is probably able to do a lot of things we talked about. So it so happens that there's probably certain states that are better at it and probably doing it more than others. But I think the area which is important is just the understanding what is happening irrespective of who is doing it hmm. and what it means and the education to kind of understand the manipulation. And I, and I personally believe, and this is maybe controversial and edited out if you sort of feel you need to, but I personally think that even ridiculous conspiracy theories like QAnon or, or whatever, or some of the things we saw in the election, that they don't actually necessarily realize the extent to which themselves are also possibly manipulated um, with a sort of broader objective. <laughs> we are definitely not editing that out. There's not, that is one, one hell of a statement. I like it. And I find it interesting that the remedy to the information or the misinformation is education. And so it's, better information. The one thing that I think about is my neighbor, who is an interesting fellow. And he, if I went to him and said these things, he would tell me, open your eyes. Can't you see that is just the propaganda bullshit that they're spinning at you? So I know he's not the only one that is like that there are so many people that have gone down the rabbit hole so far. Yeah. Where do we go from here is my line of thinking. And I, I think about, yes, education, that is the way forward. But then when you have people that are going to, I mean, you look at just normal education and whether you yeah. can teach this or that in the curriculum, there yeah. is lots of debate over it and it's cause for polarization. So, yeah who chooses the curriculum there and how do yeah. we let people know? Yeah. So, okay. So there are a few things here. One is indeed the question around education and then two for completeness, because I, you know, we're talking informally and I just interjected that as something that I feel is important across many aspects. Of course, there are many other areas to be addressed as regulation, et cetera. The only thing I would caution is that I don't think personally, and there's again, personal view that, regulation is so simple. I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think, first of all, you can't necessarily achieve consensus when there's polarization and distrust. Um, in a way, the objective of trying to kind of um, play with coalitions or norms or how you treat the data and privacy or breaking up the tech companies or forcing them to um, um, fill in the gap for vulnerabilities or have certain standards or get rid of certain things is, it, is an important step and we have to go through that and there's a lot to blame there. I guess the question for me fundamentally is that algorithms exist, the, the propagation, the interconnectivity, the multiplicity of connections, all of that still exists. And so let's say hypothetically that you broke up Twitter and broke up Facebook and gave them a $10 fine every time this or that was posted, et cetera. 
The question as to whether that would fundamentally resolve the things we've talked about, because yes. the drivers of what we talked about are not necessarily just attributable. And is it happening less in Europe because of GDPR or GRDP? Always get the acronym yeah. wrong. Is Don't it worry. happening? Uh, me too. I'm glad I found somebody else that also gets. Or is it even maybe causing other problems because they can't share data and can't do what Israel is doing, which can be very effective. Mm. So again, the worst of both worlds. Is Europe doing better because they, you know, certain things are more maybe under more scrutiny? Not sure. I mean, Brexit in the UK. You look at polarization of France and Italy. I'm not sure. So. The question for me is, of course, without a doubt, one needs to kind of up the game in terms of regulation and all that. But fundamentally, when there are vulnerabilities, they'll be exploited faster than any protection can prevail mm. in today's world. And I don't think that will necessarily change. And so that's why I didn't necessarily kind of have as a first answer that it was so simple to go through a cookie cutter, break up Google, just like they did the airlines and the oil companies and the telecoms in the 80s. The second thing I would add to that breakup scenario, and again, I'm not pro anyone. I do my own thing today. I'm not working for Google. I couldn't care what they become broken up in 10 or 100 or a million. But I do acknowledge that something like Google or Twitter or what have you, or even the Chinese platforms or others in Asia, we're in a complex environment. And so the question I do ask myself is that when you have the airlines or the oil industry or telecommunications decades ago that you broke up in a complicated world where you have a better understanding of cause and effect and where things are slightly more isolated, you know what you're doing and what the result is. Mm. Whereas I'm not sure, and again, what do I know and what does it matter what I think? But as you, we're having this conversation, I'm sharing it. I'm not sure that if you broke up a Twitter or Google or did whatever people who are deciding on legislation, who don't actually understand how Google works. I don't think even Google understands how Google works mm. and the powers of Google and the powers of things that you could take out of Google and just have happening anyway, because algorithms exist and information exists and everybody's on smartphone. All of these features of disruption, I'm not sure that it's necessarily resolved through simple fixes on technology, regulation, et cetera. That's not to say that those avenues should not be um, addressed and explored, et cetera. Coming back to the question specifically on education, yes, it's a problem. It's a problem, the fact that today um, the people who are responsible for curricula and for school and for education are people who don't want change or people who are well paid to have inefficient systems or who are well paid to ignore how useless the curricula are because they're receiving money to certify certain courses and programs. And because the schools are useless, there's extra tuition and they can rob people with private tuition and all kinds of stuff. So it is a problem. Um, I would point towards what countries like Finland or Israel or others who are leaders in education do. And I guess one of the things they do is they don't allow a bunch of uh, greedy people um, to get a huge benefit from uh, the system being absolutely terrible and who are incentivized to not having a change for anything better. That's what I'll start by doing for people to have, a, you know, um, to be accountable, to be aligned. Um, and that might help uh, understand and assess with an open mind what's best for future generations and for education, as opposed to what's best for a company that gets uh, $10,000 a year to credit uh, 37,000 institutions or what have you. Yeah. Wow. A lot to unpack there. And 
I know we're running over time. I could talk to you all day, Roger. I really appreciate you sitting here with me and, and staying over. I have one last question for you. And it is the question that I ask everyone at the end of these shows. Uh, I mean, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but I want to be respectful of your time. So the last question is, are you a robot? <laughs> I think we all are. I think we all are. And uh, I think we all are partly because some of the features of, of robots and automation and all that, I guess you can find in in biology and, and other things, um, <clears throat> and the brain, but um, not that robots have our brain, but there's some automated elements to, to that. But I, I think more seriously, um, as time goes and we're more and more intersecting with technology and we're more and more converging with technology and even fusing with technology, I think that ultimately, even without singularity or even not suggesting any of, of that necessarily or without what people consider to be transhumanism, ultimately, we are probably very meshed already with technology. And some of that is, is driving our, our behaviors and choices and, and motions and automotions maybe. Um, and so in, to my mind, I would say there are elements of being a robot, which are maybe part of man to a degree or vice versa. What came first, the robot or the man? Um, but certainly directionally, I would say that uh, more and more so by the day, whether we, we like that or not. Brilliant. I think you're the first one who's actually given a crack at answering it in a legit manner. Everyone else just comes up with a joke. And then we move on. But I appreciate that about you. Roger, thank you so much for coming on here and enlightening me to so many of these different facets of what you are doing and how you are doing it. I appreciate it. It's so fun, Dimitri. I really enjoy your show. I really enjoy some of the... I listened to quite a few of the previous guests and that. And uh, just keep it up. That's great, the sort of uh, conversations. Awesome. We'll see you later. And thanks again. Keep on, my friend.